Hebrews chapter 8. Why no religious devotion without Jesus can get you to heaven. That's the topic today, just while you're looking all that up. So I'm talking to my grandson, Jack. We uh, picked him up from Innova, and we went to Tim Hortons. He gets two donuts, because it's been a hard, long day. Two donuts. Rini's up getting whatever beverage, caffeinated beverage she she gets, and I'm talking to Jack, and I said, so Jack, who's your favorite teacher? And he says, I think it's, it, it might be uh, Miss McLaughlin. And I said, well, there's two now, one in music, and he goes, and he's serious, granddad, listen, listen carefully. That's what he said. Listen carefully. Mrs. McLaughlin, Miss McLaughlin. (laughs) Then he goes, do you hear the difference? (laughs) I said, yes, granddad's a little slow, but I'm, I'm, I see. So there's Miss McLaughlin, Mrs. McLaughlin. Mrs. McLaughlin's the mom Miss McLaughlin is the... So I had it all straight, and I got a little lecture from my, from my grandson. Listen to the difference. Hebrews 8. This thing keeps going off. I can tell you right now, this is going to be nothing but trouble all morning. We'll see if we keep going with this. Hebrews 8, 1 to 5. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. He means the Levites, descendants of Aaron. This high priest was of the tribe of Judah. So if he was on earth right now, he wouldn't be qualified to offer sacrifices at all. That's what he's saying. They serve, that earthly priesthood, the whole old covenant, as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. This text gains impact when we consider our writer's uh, original audience. His heart, our writer. A lot of people think it's the Apostle Paul. No one knows for sure. But his heart is troubled when he sees the uh, potential diluting of the faith of these Jewish believers, these followers of Christ. They haven't yet changed their mind about Jesus, but... The language of this letter hints that they were leaning, tilting, weakening 
in faith. I mean, they had family, they had friends, they had their previous religious associations, all urging them back under the old covenant. There's a New Testament urgency to um, the exclusivity of commitment to Christ alone that is, that is totally missed by our uh, inclusive religious culture. Galatians 5.4 says, Paul writes and says, you are, listen, severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You're, you're fallen from grace. It's this or that. You, you can't have both. So it's not like you got four tires on your car, you throw a spare in the trunk. You, you, you can't add anything to a commitment to Christ. When you add anything else, you delete faith in Christ. We may wonder why our our writer keeps going over the same ideas in this letter. But you would too, if you had someone you loved, uh, perhaps someone you had led to the Lord, and you saw that one being drawn away from gospel faith and gospel truth. Like, our writer, when we read those words, he isn't trying to compose sermon texts for worshipers at Cedarview on a Sunday morning in 2017. He, he's, he's trying to rescue the perishing. He's, he's trying to uh, rekindle and preserve gospel faith in his beloved hearers. And that passion drives us into the very first point. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 2. See these words? Now the point of what we are saying. Can you see that? The point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister. Right now, Jesus is a minister. In the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. Even a casual glance at these verses reveals that uh, they aren't a new subject. You've heard this before. The priesthood of Jesus entering behind the veil on our behalf. At best, this is a restatement of what he's already written in a pretty lengthy explanation. What is important here is the very first phrase in these verses, the one I underlined. And, and the, way it, the way it kind of maps out the purpose of biblical truth whenever we hear it. Our writer hasn't changed subjects, yet, yet because he's not sure that that lengthy explanation about the priesthood of Christ... He's not sure that it's made the impression on his readers that it needs to make. See, that, that's why he says, the, the, now the, the point of all this, when does spiritual hearing 
take place. Here we are. It's the word. Certainly, I'm fallible. You don't have to listen to me. But, but the word, we're all hearing it. What, what's the, why are we doing this? That's a good question, isn't it? What is the goal here this morning? Our writer's audience would, would have this letter, sure enough, and the explanation of the greater priestly ministry of Christ been presented in a lot of detail. We've been looking at it for the past few Sundays. But, but does the doctrine as presented, is it, is it capturing the attention that it deserves? That's the issue being flagged in that opening phrase. Now, now the point in this, what is our writer worried about? What, what does he fear they're going to miss? What might we miss? Does he not trust his words? Yes, he does. He knows he's explaining uh, inspired divine truth. But he also knows, goodness knows, we know as well, the explanation has been long. Started in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8. So he knows the explanation has been long. He knows that the subject is, is involved. So we're reminded right away that not all important truth is simple truth. It's a lie. And there's something else our writer knows. He knows he's comparing the present new covenant priestly ministry of our ascended Lord on our behalf, he knows he's, he's comparing and contrasting that with the old covenant priesthood, which was, which was visible and tangible and colorful. Everyone could see all those Old Testament priests with their flowing robes, golden breastplates, fragrant incense. And our writer knows he's asking his readers and us, he's asking his readers to reject the tangible, visible priesthood and embrace the heavenly priesthood of Jesus that no one can see, no one can touch. He knows, our writer, that I am more influenced by what I can look at than what I can't see. He knows I'm more influenced by what I can touch than what I can't touch. I'm more interested in what I can put into my wallet. And so the lengthy nature of the explanation the complication of the subject, and, and our natural fallen inclination towards the visible over the spiritual, they all, those things all work to lessen the impact 
the, the impression of this divine revelation of the heavenly priesthood of Christ. That's why our writer feels urgency in his letter. It's hard. He knows, and we know, that the subject of this text today isn't just some information about Christianity. He knows it's the heart of what Christianity is. It's What we're studying right now is the reason the Bible you bring to church, in whatever form you bring it, it's the reason it has two testaments instead of just one. It's the reason we gather here on the Lord's Day instead of on the Sabbath. It's the explanation for why we don't see Jesus anywhere on earth right now. Where did he go? Why did he go? What is he doing? These aren't little questions. These aren't little side issues. This is Christianity. And our writer knows how easy it is to hear biblical truth without, without hearing it all the way through. Without doing the focusing. Without doing the mental work. Our writer isn't content to explain truth without that truth making an impression on us. That's his main concern. I mean, there's, there's nothing faith-sustaining in just hearing truth or even agreeing truth, merely as some uh, point of theological download. This is, this is what we're up against. It's not just knowing divine truth. It's divine truth leaving a lasting impact. The point of what we're saying is this, 8.1. It's like, I can tell you an entire joke and you not get the punchline. You can hear the whole thing, right? And I can hardly wait to tell it. And I get to the end of it and you go, what? Or, more commonly, I sit in the family room with Rainey and we're watching something on TV, watching a movie, watching a program comes to the end, and we have a conversation, and she realizes, I have, I have no idea what that was about. Why did that guy's sister say, that wasn't his sister, really? Watch the whole thing. But nothing making an impact on me. The great... C.S. Lewis scholar Clyde Kilby, he expressed incredible insight and great theology when he said this. One of the great tragedies of the fall is the way it makes us tired of familiar glories. One of the great tragedies of the fall is the way it makes us tired of familiar glories, the stuff you were raised in. 
All Christians wrestle with this. It's like moving to Switzerland and being struck with the breathless beauty of the Alps. And then after living there six months, never even looking out the window anymore. They haven't changed. No impact. And our writer is concerned. His readers are going to be drawn away from Christ and back into Judaism, not, be, not because they don't know better, but because they haven't remained passionately impressed with what they have heard about what Christ is doing presently on their behalf. When you think about this subject, the proper impact of of divine truth, you'll see this over and over again in the scriptures. Let me just give you an example. By the way, there's just a few points in this message. The first one is by far the longest. By far the longest, okay? So don't don't be missing what I'm saying because you're doing the mental math, okay? It's it's like it's been 20 minutes, point number one. I know he's got a bunch of others back there. This is going to be like, oh, don't do that. This is the bulk of it, this first point. Look at this text with me. 1 Peter 1, 23 to chapter 2, verse 3. What I want to show you here, just so you see where we're going, is, is, is the same concern our writer has in Hebrews of reading, reading, biblical truth, or hearing it preached in this text, and what should happen to us in that process. All right? That's what I want to study for just a second. 1 Peter 1, 23 to 2, 3. Since you have... You have to jump into the middle of a thought. Since you have been born again... So he's writing to Christians. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable... Look what he says. Through... The living and abiding, here it is. So it's the word of God, right? For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. But here it is again. But the word of the Lord, that's what he's talking about, remains forever. And this, here it is again, this word is the good news that was preached to you. So they don't have a New Testament like you have. They don't have that. All they did was, Peter says, you heard the word of God preached to you. So put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. That by it, what is the it? Well, the it and and the pure spiritual milk are this, right? It's the word that was preached to them, which was the word of God. That's what I see there. That's not a reach, is it? You all agree? That's what he's talking about. So you have the word preached to you. The word abides forever. The word is the good news. The word is what was preached to you. Long for it. That you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted. 
that the Lord is good. Now, he did something really, really strange in that passage. Did you catch it? The way this should read, there's this preciousness of the word. It's living and abiding, 23. It remains forever, 25. It was preached to the people by the apostles, 25. By it, you may grow up into salvation, 2-2. The it is the word, obviously. So far, so good. And you would think, here's how it would all end. You think he would say, if indeed you have tasted that the word is good. But he doesn't. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. These people haven't seen Jesus that he's preaching to, most of them. Jesus has already ascended and gone. They don't even have Bibles, New Testaments. All they, all they have, think about this, all they have is the Apostle Peter. Peter is coming and he's saying, Here, here's what I saw in Jesus. Here's what Jesus talked about. Here's what his death on the cross was all about. Here's how he rose again. And you put your trust in him. So that's the word that these people have. And just with that, Peter's hope, his expectation is they will actually not know, taste. Not that the gospel is good, but Jesus is good. They will come to taste the glory of the beauty, they will, they will savor the Lord as they listen to the word. To me, that's stunning. We talk about it, don't we? Having a personal relationship with Jesus, don't we talk about that? Don't we talk about accepting Jesus, believing in Jesus? We'll look at that more next week. But, but what this text says. The word properly heard. If we get the point of it, 8-1. It's not just about information. It starts with that. You have to have a good understanding of the word. But, but the problem is if you, if you stop with correct understanding and don't pray and work and think and pray again till you experience that the Lord is good and there's a, there's a wonder in it. There's a, there's, a, there's a flavor to it that makes everything else seem insignificant and boring. That's what Peter wants. That's what the writer of Hebrews, that's what he's saying to these to these uh, Jewish believers. It's easy not to do this. It's easy for me not to do this. It is so easy not to approach the word like Psalm 42.1. Not to approach the word like a deer that's been running and running and running and running and is desperate for water with his tongue hanging out, panting.
the prophet Isaiah describes another approach. Not to false teaching or idols, but an approach to the word of the Lord that results in nothing but distance between the heart and God. It's in Isaiah 29, 13. Let me try and show it to you. And the Lord said, because these people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, their, look at, their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Not, not idols, their, their fear of me. It's, it's, it's they, they, they hear the priests, they hear the prophets, they hear the people, and there's, and there's some kind of a, an outward correspondence, agreement. But these people were, were spiritual reductionists who, who heard the truth without treasuring God in the truth. And desperately fearing, disobeying that God. That was totally missing. So they heard, but didn't see the point in what they heard. Hebrews 8.1. Didn't savor the goodness of the Lord in what they heard preached. Didn't taste the goodness of the Lord in what they heard preached. First Peter. I've taken too long with this point. I get it. But, but let me sum up with this exhortation. This is, not a, this is not a small point. This is this is massive in the life of your soul before the Lord. Develop the hard work of meditating on divine truth, reading, meditating, praying, reading again, meditating again, praying again, until you... Sense it starting to change your life lens. By that I mean I, I, I've learned divine truth too lightly until, until I treasure what I see to the point that I can jo- enjoy nothing else without it. This I must have. And in the same way, study every caution, every warning in God's word until you fear nothing else more than just missing and neglecting it. So, when you pray, pray for these two things. Pray for what Paul calls the opening of the eyes of your heart. Not just just these eyes. The ones that see the squiggly lines on paper. Those have to be open, granted. But, but pray that there's another set of eyes on your heart that they're that opened, enlightened. Pray that you will always read Scripture with an eye to seeing the point, the preciousness, the weight of what you read. All right, sorry. Point number two. The principle of the tabernacle worship needs to be applied to the heavenly priestly ministry of the Christ. Hebrews 8, 1 to 5. Let me read it again quickly. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. 
one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. And then he starts with this comparison. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. There's so much you could say right there. Three. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest, speaking of Christ, also to have something to offer, which he did. We sang about the blood. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, Levites. Five. They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, you get the impression that Moses was, was actually, if, if those words mean anything, he, he was just about to get to work. He, he was anxious to get going, starting the work. When he was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God, wait a minute. See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So we think of the mountain and the Ten Commandments. But there's this as well. It does seem strange, doesn't it, after telling us repeatedly that the Old Testament priestly approach to God was weak and useless, 718, and that it made nothing perfect, 719. It seems strange that our writer would quote these verses in chapter 8 where God insists everything about the tabernacle worship be done exactly according to divine specifications. That's in chapter 8, verse 5. See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. I take that to mean that the point of these words is there's something about the construction of that tabernacle, the specific instruction regarding exactly how to make that tabernacle. There's something about that that reflects an eternal reality that people might easily forget, or worse, willfully reject and deny. And what we're supposed to notice, I believe, is God divinely constructs a whole passing priestly sacrificial tabernacle system, which while never capable of removing sin, the text already told us that, it still made the eternal point, this is it, the point, that God had to be approached in his prescribed way, no exceptions. That's the point of application. Here's what we know for sure about the tabernacle and the priests and the temple that would follow. If anyone other than a Levite offered a sacrifice to the Lord, it was an abomination. That's the word used. We don't use it much, but that's the word used. If a Levite offered a sacrifice in another location, it was an abomination. And that whole system was designed 
according to our text, to, to sort of predefine the eternal reality of the coming Lamb of God. This was God's appointed sacrifice, Lamb of God. God's appointed sacrifice, God's appointed high priest, and that there were no options for sinners making approach to a holy God in any other way. Don't miss the wisdom of this progressive unfolding revelation here. The, the, the pattern of God's revelation is designed, how can I say it? It's, it's designed to disarm the uh, constructed rationalizations of fallen mankind's proposed tolerance in coming to God, ignoring both human sinfulness and divine holiness. So human contrivance for what God might accept is eliminated in both covenants. That's what our writer is saying. Human opinion is dethroned in both covenants. Political correctness is divinely shunned in both covenants. All those divinely appointed shadows, they're fulfilled in the one Redeemer, High Priest, Jesus, the Christ. You can read about that. Colossians 2.17. Here's the same word. He's our shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. This has been our writer's theme, really. It's been our writer's theme. We've been at this 30 weeks, 29 weeks. It's been his theme since Hebrews chapter 1. He opens his letter long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in, but in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is, he is the radiance, shines. The radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the two points. With the help of the Spirit of God, whenever I hear about Jesus in church. Without the help of the Spirit of God, I will likely hear it too lightly. I mean, I will agree with it. But the idea is, in, in, in just hearing the word preach, is, is tasting that the Lord is good. Don't let that diminish. Pray. Read. Pray. Read. Meditate. Read. Pray. Read, meditate, read, pray. 
The reason is the whole Old Testament system, all those shadows, they point to the fact that there is no one who can redeem your heart, raise your body, usher in a new creation, but Jesus Christ. And somehow, when Tom comes up here at the beginning of the service and says, there's only so many ways to say it. I don't, I don't fault him at all. Welcome, everybody. It's Sunday morning at CDB. Let's stand and let's worship the Lord. I hope something in your heart doesn't just go, oh, here we go again. I'm going to worship the Lord. If you taste that he's good, that he's good, and his mercy endures forever. Let's pray.